Okay, um, I'm very pleased to welcome you tonight to the LSE in the Forum for European Philosophy. For those of you who don't know me yet, my name is Christina Musser, I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and a Fellow at the Philosophy Department here. And um, as you might know, um, the aim that we have with this Consilience Series, as the title might suggest, is to bring together perspectives from different disciplines, different areas of expertise and knowledge and see if they can contribute to another, if we can somehow integrate the knowledge from these different areas of expertise. And with this sort of broad aim in mind, today the topic of our <coughs> discussion will be the evolution of morality. Um, of course, morality is a, is a big topic, obviously very popular. Um, thanks everybody for coming. And it's, a, of course, a concern that has um, the issue of morality, what morality is, um, has concerned philosophers for a long time. But the question we want to ask today is whether um, evolutionary biology and to some extent also developmental psychology and comparative psychology can also contribute to an understanding of morality. So what is morality? Uh, is it something that is unique to humans or do we to some extent share it with other species? How does morality develop? Um, does it depend on rationality? Does it depend on emotions? Um, does it require a specific cultural context, a specific way of socializing? Um, and today, here to discuss these, is these issues with us um, are Jason Alexander, who is a reader in philosophy here at the philosophy department at the LSE, uh, Andrew Pinson, who is a research director at the Ayn Ramsey Center for Science and Religion at the University of Oxford, and Keith Jensen, who's a lecturer in comparative and developmental psychology at Queen Mary at the University of London. And the way we'll proceed is that um, each of the speakers will give you a very brief presentation to give us sort of their take on this whole debate, on this whole issue, to sort of set the stage for the wider discussion. And then we'll discuss um, the issues in the panel and then open up the discussion, of course, to contributions and questions from you. So um, I guess we'll just start with the first presentation. I think Jason will um, begin. And I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion. All right, so I'd just like to thank Christina again for inviting me to this. It's always nice to talk to people who are interested in what one is actually working on. Um, let me begin with just uh, kind of a brief statement about what I want to try to cover in 10 minutes. I want to begin, first of all, with actually being, being relatively precise about the exact sense of evolution that I'm interested in. And the reason why I want to begin clarifying this is that the sense of evolution that I want to speak about is, I think, actually somewhat different in kind from that which Keith will be concentrating on. And I th it has to do with basically a distinction between biological conceptions of evolution and cultural conceptions of evolution. Now, I don't think that there's necessarily a conflict between invoking one if, or both of those to try to understand morality. But just from my perspective, the kinds of questions that I'm interested in and the kinds of techniques that I am going to use to try to answer how morality might have evolved and what it leads us to understand about morality, I'll be primarily coming at this from the point of view of cultural evolution, emphasizing rationality, or at least our boundedly rational nature. So after having done that, 
I then want to say a few things about an area of economics or decision theory that's known as evolutionary game theory. It's actually much more uh, intuitive than the name might make it sound. And then I want to actually give a somewhat extended example of how one can try to explain certain kinds of moral behavior using these techniques of game theory. And in particular, I'm going to be concentrating on the norm of fair division in perfectly symmetric circumstances because I think that's one moral intuition that we all quite strongly share. And then I want to actually say what the resulting view of morality is that one can take away from this. And I think it's an interesting uh, point which I will actually label objective moral relativism. And if that sounds like a contradiction in terms, part of what I want to convince you is that it actually isn't. Okay. So just to begin. So in thinking about evolution, we can distinguish two different senses. The first is the ordinary conception of evolution that you're familiar with from Darwin and so on, and that's you know, the biological conception of evolution. This involves things such as natural selection, you know, Dawkins' idea of the selfish gene, you can think of uh, you know, Huxley's idea of survival of the fittest, and of course, you know, working within that is the fact that as organisms evolve, that there's an interaction between the actual genes that they have and the environment in which they find themselves. And then if you look at elsewhere in the literature, you find topics arising such as, does evolution just operate on individuals or does it operate on kind of groups or, or social entities? Now, the point that I want to stress is that when you think about how morality, how human morality came about, what biological evolution effectively does is you can think of that as constructing the arena in which cultural evolution takes place. Biological evolution sets down the, the boundary conditions within which you know, human creativity and culture can actually operate. There are certain things which are not viable possibilities in terms of our morality simply because of our biological inheritance. Now, although I think that, I'm not actually going to say anything about those biological constraints that we have acquired. Like I said, I want to stress or concentrate on the idea of cultural evolution. Now, what is that? Some of you might have heard Dawkins speak about uh, the idea of memes and so on, but I think that that actually makes the idea of cultural evolution sound much more mysterious than it actually needs to be. By cultural evolution, I really mean nothing more than just change in belief over time. So that's it. I, w I should say that when I talk about beliefs, what I really do mean is a, a more general conception of belief that also encompasses values and so on. Now, and so the idea is that if you look at different forms of behavior, right, so perhaps individual behavior, how certain people act in certain ways, different behaviors and different social practices have what you can think of as something like different levels of fitness or desirability given the people's desires, ends, goals, and ambitions, right? And it's that sense of fitness that cultural evolution operates on. Okay, so how does this actually connect to game theory and morality? Well, the important thing to, to keep in mind about human social life is that a lot of our interactions with each other involve problems of strategic interaction. Think of the book Robinson Crusoe. When Robinson Crusoe was stranded on the island by himself, did he need morality? And the answer is no, he didn't. It's only upon the occurrence of another individual that moral rules and moral constraints become important. And the reason is it's only in the presence of other people is the possibility of conflict and the possibility of, of uh, the kinds of problems that morality tries to help us negotiate arise. 
And that's why it's interesting to approach this using game theory, because game theory, taken literally as just the study of games like chess, poker, or uh, to, if you want to conceive of it as a game, global thermonuclear war, right? All of these are problems of strategic interaction. And that's what game theory is about. Now, what's evolutionary game theory? Well, evolutionary game theory just looks at problems of strategy, but from an evolutionary point of view. So think of a game like chess. The game of chess has certain rules that are constitutive, making the game what it is, but then there are other rules of how you play the game of chess that determine whether or not you win or lose, or whether you do well or badly. And the point is, different ways of playing the game of chess have different fitness associated with them. And so if you think about how different ways of playing the game can actually interact or spread or be adopted, you can see, hopefully, how thinking about games from an evolutionary perspective actually can help us understand how certain ways of, a play, of playing games can actually spread and flourish throughout a population. Okay. So now to perhaps jump a bit too quickly to the question of, well, what is morality? Think again about what I said about a game of chess. You have rules that actually make the game of chess what it is, and then you have rules for how you go about playing the game of chess. If you think of morality as a system of rules or principles, those rules, principles, and values that morality provides are rules that we can use to actually negotiate the game of life that we find ourselves playing when interacting with other people. Because all of us have our own ends and aims and ambitions that we want to see realized, but our goals are not all mutually compatible. There's a certain amount of conflict that I'm going to face simply because you are after your own goals and your own aims. Right? Not all of us can become the prime minister. Not all of us can even become successful sports uh, players or successful uh, you know, auto mechanics or whatever our ambitions are. That existence of conflict means you need morality to help adjudicate this dispute. And that, what I want to say is morality helps us negotiate these disputes as well as possible given the limitations of humanity. Okay, so let me give an example about how this might actually come about regarding uh, the evolution of fairness. Okay. Suppose you're living in the suburbs of the United States, in one of those desolate areas where every house is arranged in a grid. Okay? Think of this as representing such a suburb. Okay. Suppose people have to share a resource. Okay. So think of the resource as a piece of cake, or as, a or as an entire cake, sliced into 10 pieces. You have to share it with, uh, with your neighbor. You're perfectly symmetric. No one has any greater need or claim on the cake. Okay. What should you do? Well, the obvious intuition is that we share and share alike. How does that come about? Okay, you can think of this strategically. Suppose that everyone plays this game with their nearest neighbors, right? So the eight people who surround them on a grid. Think of people as having a strategy, how much of the cake they ask. No slices, up to 10 slices. Suppose you play the game with your eight surrounding neighbors, and at the end, after you get all of the cake from your individual interactions, you then just look around and see how well you did in terms of number of pieces of cake that you get and how well other people did. And suppose you just imitate the best. So in other words, you look at the person around you who did the best and you do the same thing that they did. What happens? Okay, here we've got one such world in which you know, initial behaviors, initial strategies are assigned at random. And if we run this 
model forward, you see that although there was a great deal of heterogeneity in the beginning state, what happens is everyone ends up asking for half of the cake. Right? Now, it turns out that this isn't an accident. Suppose that we were to begin the world in an alternate state, where here we only have two types of people, those who ask for four or those who ask for six slices of cake, and suppose we start the world in this case. What happens? Well, obviously, since there are only two strategies, they're going to kind of alternate. But suppose we introduce a mutant, or someone who experiments and asks for half of the cake. That strategy is successful. It spreads throughout the population in the way a cultural fad does. Or think of this as an epidemiological model of uh, a, you know, a disease spreading through a population. And fair, fair division is eventually adopted by everyone. OK. Does that happen in other cases? Well. Here's a case where you've got people, again, at random. Suppose they interact with their nearest, nearest uh, neighbors according to some distance, like, say, within you know, 10 meters, within 100 meters or so. What happens? Well, over time, we see that you know, fair division spreads as well until everyone in the population follows that. And this happens almost always in a number of different cases. Okay, in interest of time, I'm going to skip these other two and just get to the real point, the, what's actually at stake here. What's the concern about making morality contingent upon you know, human social conditions and the outcome of human interests in this process of negotiation? Well, the natural worry that people have is that it's a commitment to a form of moral relativism. And people think that that's a bad thing. Well, I want to suggest that concerns about moral relativism are often frequently misstated. Why? Well, because the idea of moral relativism is that it's, it's often understood as a view that anything goes. But the thing to note is that the antonym of relative is, not, is absolute. It's not objective. Think of, say, Newtonian mechanics. Newtonian mechanics thought of space as being absolute, right? You could actually have a universal coordinate system that was absolute. When you go to relativity, you give up that idea. So what we can do is actually divide conceptions of morality into, say, the, into, say, the scope of the rule. Is it relative, applying to context or situations, or is it absolute? And then the question is, well, given the rule, what actually determines the appropriateness or the correctness of that rule? Is it subjective, depending only upon a person, or is it objective, depending on the group? So if you think of traditional religions like Christianity, right, that would be a case of an absolute and an objective moral code. Absolute because it comes from God, objective because statements like honor your mother and father don't depend upon the person. Right? Now, um, you might say, well, what would be an example of absolute and subjective? Well, interestingly, uh, Satanism is actually an example <laughs> of this. If you look in the Satanic Bible, written by Anton Stanzer Levey, you see noted that the following claim. It says, do what thou will shall be the whole of the law. Now, that is an absolute statement because it's not saying this is a rule which only holds for some people. It's, it's supposed to be universally true. But it's subjective because the, what is required is simply a person doing what you want. Right? Now, the worry then, of course, this anything goes idea, would be a combination of relative, context-dependent, situational, and subjective, depending purely upon the individual. 
What I want to suggest is morality occurs in this ca combination of relative, context-dependent, de you know, socially situated, but objective because it's not an individual that makes the truth of moral claims. So, and what's interesting about this is that if you, I realize I'm going over time, I'll, be, I'll wrap up very shortly. If you think about many social practices that we take to be immoral, think of something like cannibalism, or think of homosexuality, or think of incest. You can find different examples in history where things that we take to be immoral practices actually were viewed as either moral or part of the ordinary flourishing state of society. Think of, um, so just take for example the, the uh, case of homosexuality practiced in ancient Greek culture, but yet you know, caused absolute travesty to the lives of Alan Turing and Oscar Wilde. But now as a result of changing attitudes in society, we're at a point where even David, where David Cameron can say that he supports gay marriage, not despite being a conservative, but because he is a conservative. <laughs> Shift in conceptions of, 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 of what is you know, morally acceptable. And uh, just briefly, in the case of incest, although generally not practiced because it creates recessive genes to be expressed as the Habsburgs found, Right, it was actually conducted by the Hawaiian royal family right, as a way of trying to keep the bloodline pure. And it just so happens that through a genetic accident, there were insufficient recessive genes so as to be able to enable that to occur without the fate that the Habsburgs encountered. And cannibalism as a form of, uh, kind of showing respect for the dead is practiced by many societies. What matters is the, con is the contextualization within a social practice and the fact that what makes a certain behavior moral or not is objective based on the group's conception rather than simply the subjective will of one person. Right. And, the re and I'll stop here, but I just want to say that the reason why this is an interesting view is that it shows how we can have fundamental moral agreement, how there actually can be shifts in moral views over time, but yet there is a fundamental fact of the matter about one, what one ought to do that does not depend upon the individual, but it depends on what is in the, the best interest for resolving these strategic problems that people face in society. I've gone on far too long, but thank you very much. I won't be talking about cats, actually. Um, but I guess the first question is, why do I want to start my talk with a cat? And it's based on a Get Well card I saw when I was young. Let's see if it wants to work now. It says, your cat knows exactly how you feel. He doesn't care, but he knows. <laughs> OK, cat owners would probably sympathize with this. Dog owners might say it's something of the reverse. They care how you feel, they just haven't a clue. Um, I'm going to be asking a different question than Jason was. I'm going to be focusing on the emotional aspects, but a lot of what he said will be relevant. So it's, it's very useful to keep that in mind, especially when we come to the cultural aspects. And I'm going to be looking at, basically, the question I'm going to be asking is, who cares? Which is, where do these other regarding concerns come from? What are they? And what is their relevance to discussions of morality? I don't study morality per se. I study chimpanzees and um, children. 
and I don't ask, not, not always together. Um, and well, anyways, I'll explain why I'm doing this. It sounds a little bit odd. I mean, no one says, sits down with a chimp and says, so tell me about metaphysics. Um, Darwin suggested it, but anyways, what, what do I mean by social concerns or other regarding concerns? These are emotions that you have that are aligned or misaligned with the emotions or welfare of others. So for instance, if you're sad because a friend is sad, we'll, argue, we'll say that you're empathic. You're sad because of the other person's sadness. And that you can think of these emotions then as being aligned. And these can actually lead to people doing nice things. So you can have comforting behavior as a result of empathic concern. Okay, and so if your friend is happy and you feel happy because they're happy, you can see the alignment. But other regarding concerns aren't always aligned. There's misaligned ones. So for instance, the little girl to your right doesn't seem to be happy at her friend's happiness. Okay? In fact, she looks a bit unhappy about that. And you know, if, if the two kids had braces and their braces got stuck, she, she might actually take some vicarious pleasure out of the suffering of her friend. Now, those aren't very pleasant other regarding concerns, and one can ask what they have to do with morality other than getting in the way of it. I'll actually argue that these sorts of concerns do have an important role in morality. Relatedly, um, Jason did a much better job of explaining fairness concerns than I have done, but I'll give you another example. So imagine you've just bought yourself a brand new 10-inch black and white television set, and it's the pride of the household, until your neighbor buys one. <laughs> now, you'll experience jealousy, okay? But there's, there's another word that's actually missing from the English language, which fortunately the Germans have donated to us, which is schadenfreude. So something terrible befalls your neighbor's television, you'll actually feel happy about this. Okay, so joy at the misfortunes of others. Interestingly, a lot of this is dovetailed with concerns for fairness, okay? And fairness concerns become very important when discussing morality, as, as Jason had pointed out. Now, these things are all important from an evolutionary perspective. I'm going to be talking about biological evolution primarily, but not only. And you can see that cooperation is an adaptive behavior that, you know, individuals benefit and so on. And you can see how positive emotions can help this. You know, the big dog maybe feels happy at the little dog's happiness, and the little dog feels gratitude and shares the hamburger. It's not true. This is staged. Okay? But, you know, cooperation has a downside. And biologists talk about the cooperation problem. And the problem is free riding. Okay, so, you know, if you have a gentleman here carrying a single bottle of beer while his friend is carrying the rest, you might perceive this as being a very imbalanced situation. You know, why did this arise? How is this exploitation allowed to happen? And as a bystander, as somebody witnessing this, you might actually experience moral outrage, this um, unfair situation, if you will. Now, how do we study these sorts of things from an evolutionary perspective? One is, is to study different cultures to see if there are things that are universal. Okay, so is incest avoidance universal across cultures? Is cannibalism? These sorts of issues do come up. Moralities do differ across culture. But are there any core elements? Are there any core similarities such as fairness concerns? How does that look cross-culturally? Another approach is to look at it developmentally. And I'll talk a little bit about how this happens in children. Where does the morality of children come from? I'll also be talking about looking at other animals to see how they solve the problems of sociality. And morality can be seen as one solution to the problem of living in groups. Most of the work I've done was on chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are our closest living relatives. They're separated from us by six million years, which is a long time or short time, depending on whom you ask. Um, 
Unfortunately, our closest relatives, like Neanderthal and Australopithecus and Homo erectus and all those guys, they're extinct, which is really a shame. It'd be useful to ask how they would solve these problems. But I work with chimps, because <laughs> they're at least alive. <laughs> now, how do you study morality or other regarding concerns in chimps? There's some very interesting work done by field naturalists who've produced amazing volumes of work, but it's very hard to get at what's going on inside an animal's head. So this work tends to be done experimentally, and the work I was doing on this was when I was working in Germany at something called the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. Call it the chimp place for short. And the chimp place is this huge structure built inside a zoo. All four grade eight species are represented. All of them are tested experimentally. They live, have large indoor and outdoor enclosures, and the experiments are done voluntarily. So we test them in testing rooms or in their sleeping rooms, and if they don't feel like doing a test, they'll just sit there and twiddle their thumbs and then leave. Okay, so this is the environment in which we test the chimps. Kids are a little easier to get our hands on. The top is the Max Planck child, well, part of it's the child research lab, and down below is gonna be my little contribution at Queen Mary University where I'll be testing kids. These, this sort of work can also be done in the field, like kindergartens and whatnot. The approach I've taken to asking how do these emotions dovetail or not is taking a sort of a game theoretical approach, but rather than the theoretical game theory, I take the experimental economics approach. Okay, so for instance, the ultimatum game, the dictator game, I'll be talking a little bit about these sorts of games. Basically what happens in these games is if, for instance, you give money to someone else, here it's just a, a yen or something, not very much, if you give an amount of money to somebody else, what motivates you to do this? Why did you do something when Economists, the standard models predict you should be utterly selfish. Anything other than pure selfishness might be a concern for others. Okay, and so I take this kind of approach. I tend not to use money. Um, kids don't appreciate it. Apes eat it. So <laughs> for apes, we use things like bananas. These are very strong motivational forces. One of the studies I did with chimps was a variation of the dictator game. The dictator game is an economist gives you a stack of money, sometimes a generous portion, Depending on the economist, some economists think one pound is generous. Some think, you're not going to buy that. Here's 100 pounds. So you're given 100 pounds. What's your name? Christian. Christian. Christian, you've been given 100 pounds, and you have been told you get to share it with someone in this audience. You don't know who they are. They don't know who you are because they're forgetful. And you've been asked you can divide it in any way that you choose with this random person. How much would you give them of 100 pounds? Well, if my friends are in the crowd, I'll give Okay, well, they're complete strangers. You don't know them. You'll never see them. Just throw up in the air. Oh, you're a nice guy. Okay, party time. <laughs> okay, party at Christian's place. Um, actually, mo most people would just give up about 20%, okay? Which is, you're, you're thinking, well, you know, you get 20 pounds. Some random guy gets 20 pounds. You've lost 20 in the deal. Um, on the other hand, an economist is scratching his head because he wonders why you gave up anything. Okay, now we wanted the chimps to do this. We could give them food and they would just eat it all and then fall asleep. So what we did is we gave them a choice of, in this variation of the game, they could pull one of two rope ends and the rope ends are attached by a rope and pulley system. I love ropes and pulleys. And a chimpanzee here can pull this table by pulling this rope and the table moves closer. This would bring a banana piece to another chimp who can do nothing but sit there and wait patiently. Alternatively, this chimp can pull this rope, which has no banana on it, but because the tables are connected, pulls the banana away. This would be a spiteful choice. And I really wanted to up the competitive stakes. This was the third of three games we played, because if this chimpanzee did nothing, this table would move on its own to the waiting chimp 16 times in a row. Okay, This guy, if he gets fed up watching him eat 
16 chunks of banana, might get fed up and pull this table, or he might decide, well, I'm just going to be nice and pull him bananas. Well, we did this with our chimps, two different kinds of recipients, an adult male who is a dominant and a sub-adult five-year-old punk who only his mom liked him, basically. Um, and she, she wasn't very nice to him in the end, it turns out. She would pull it away from him. Um, in the end, what we found was complete indifference. They just... Uh, are there censors here? Well, anyways, you can imagine... We want to call the title Chimps Don't Give a... Okay, um, because they didn't. We didn't think it would get accepted with that title. But we argued that chimpanzees in this situation were completely indifferent to outcomes affecting others. They were neither spiteful nor altruistic. They just tried to get bananas for themselves in any way possible. We tried this with children too, so we even built a little play box for them. And in this particular study, kids were just so nice all the time, we didn't even know what to do with the data. So that one <laughs> sat on a shelf, and then Ernst Fair and colleagues did something similar and got a nature paper out of it, and we were going, okay. But anyways, kids are very, very pro-social in their choices at a very young age. And as they get older, they start to show fairness concerns. They start to actually strive for equity. And I'll tell you a little bit more about how we might find that out. One of the ways of testing fairness concerns is the ultimatum game. This is really a cool game because Christian now has 100 pounds, which he can share with some random person. But that random person isn't powerless. That person can accept or reject Christian's offer. Rejecting it means they both get nothing. Accepting means they both get the division. Now, economists in the room would say Christian should offer one pound. The recipient should accept the one pound. Christian goes home, has a party. That person goes out and buys two Kit Kats. Okay, the recipient. This isn't what people do. I think your intuitions are always saying, I wouldn't take one pound. You might even feel a bit angry if you got offered one pound and somebody else gets 99. And you would be willing to forsake one pound to punish somebody by making him lose 99. This is actually very strange behavior. And this is what people do. This study's been replicated hundreds of times. It's been done in m many cultures. There's some very, very interesting differences in what people tolerate in terms of fairness. But it seems that there are fairness norms operating. They vary cross-culturally, but there are norms of fairness. In our society, a 50-50 split is considered fair, and this is what people tend to make as offers. Half of the people reject offers of 20%. How did we get chimps to play this game? It was hard, okay? This is, this is ultimatum game mark four. The first three just didn't work for one reason or another. And this is the apparatus. It's just a box. It's very simple. I'll just show you the diagram. Um, all my apparatuses, it turns out, go through what I call a fifification process. I give it to Fifi, one of the chimps. She tries to destroy it. I rebuild it, give it to Fifi again. By the time Fifi's done, I have an apparatus that is chimp-proof. What happens in this is the proposer on the left has a choice of two trays of food. One has a fair split, in this case, on the top, and the other has an unfair split, an 8-2 option. So the first chimp can pull the rod there's a rod attached. The rod is now within reach of the recipient. The recipient can now accept or reject. If the recipient accepts, she can pull the rod. The tray comes within reach. Both of them eat. She can reject by doing nothing or just pushing the rod back or whatever. What we found is the only time chimps rejected as responders was when there was no, no food at all. So if the first guy gets 10 and the recipient gets 0, then the responder is like, and rejects it. About half the time, some just like pulling. But the only time that they reject is then. They accept every non-zero offer. Chimpanzees are economists. <laughs> I'm not saying that the logical reverse is true. 
here's how it looks in, in kids. Okay, same idea. We, so this is what we try to do. So there's an offer on the top. That's the unfair offer on the top, a fair offer on the bottom. We use gummy bears for kids. So the proposer offered, the responder accepted. Very straightforward. Just in a nutshell, what did kids do? Interesting, there's variations of this game. And kids didn't, at five years of age didn't behave exactly like adults. They certainly behaved a lot better than chimps. They were much fairer in their offers, but they were sometimes still very selfish, offering nothing some of the time, which was surprising. They did reject nothing, and they rejected any departure from 50-50 splits. Okay, so in this case, it was 2-2 two, two versus 3-1. Uh, they would reject unfair offers if it was a fair offer on the table, but they were insensitive to other forms of unfairness. So they hadn't developed the fully adult sense of what constitutes a fair offer. I can say more about that later, but I'm going to move on to the last game, which addresses the issue of third-party punishment. The previous two studies addressed things that happen to you personally. But what, ha what morality really should be concerned with is things that affect others. And so we set up a third-party punishment situation in which an individual witnesses a transgression. And in chimps, a transgression involves one guy stealing another guy's food. Okay, so what happens when an observer sees somebody steal another guy's food? Okay, here's the observer in the middle. This is Reet. She's the alpha female. And her daughter, we are looking at kin effects. Her daughter, well, I'm sorry, her daughter has been working hard to get food, has finally got the food on the tray, and this guy steals her food. Wait for the moral outrage. And keep waiting. Okay. There was no third-party punishment in chimps. What about kids? Okay, we did it with puppets. I can explain more about that if you're curious. But one puppet has a snack. The other one steals her food. A child can punish by putting it into an inaccessible cave. Children were just as likely to punish third-party violations as personal harm. This was quite an interesting finding. So to summarize then, I would argue that the rational part of morality is certainly very important, but the emotional part is also a big component of this. And being concerned for the welfare of others is an important part of our moral behavior, I would argue. It emerges early in development, but we don't know how it emerges. Like, what are the cultural forces? How much of it is actually somehow innate? How do these differ cross-culture? There's little known about this topic. I would argue, contrary to some authors, that our closest living relatives appear to have no concern for the welfare of others, and that these other regarding concerns may have evolved only recently in the human lineage. Thank you very much. Um. I just want to say, after such wonderful graphics, this will be a, a much simpler presentation and really much more of a philosophical commentary. I'm not a, uh, an evolutionary biologist. I was originally a particle physicist, but I spent some years studying philosophy, so I take, a, I take an interest in these issues from afar. So if by morality we mean very roughly issues concerning goodness and right action, then questions concerning the generation of our moral capability concern the origin of how what is of what is good for us, collectively or individually, objectively or subjectively, and how we can act in such a way as to achieve this desirable state or states. 
The notion that biology can shed light on these questions is not, of course, anything new. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, whose work, The Nicomachean Ethics, is widely regarded as the most influential book on ethics ever written, he also co-invented biology, and he constructed his notion of human goodness by a kind of parallel with the flourishing of other living beings. Those who follow this line of approach today, an example being Richard Kraut, argue that just as we can talk about what is good for plants and animals, we can also talk about what is good for the healthy development of the various powers of a human being. Within this framework, right action can then be defined in terms of whatever brings about this end, or telos in Greek, this end of human flourishing. Modern biological sciences, informed by an evolutionary sense of a certain physical continuity between ourselves and non-human animals, can refine certain aspects of this approach. And two examples I've been interested in recently, one was the discovery of mirror neurons. Mirror neurons fire in animals when they see an un another animal performing an action, as if they performed the action themselves. So it's, a, it's, it's as if relatedness is hardwired into um, animal brains. And we, pretty, we have to investigate these mirror neurons normally in other, in other animals, but we infer that they operate in a similar way in the human brain. And this has helped to consolidate an appreciation of the importance of imitation and the importance of second-person relatedness in bringing about the development of character and human flourishing. So to give a commonplace example, I have five nieces, and it's interesting to watch how they acquire temperance. They don't acquire temperance in the way Aristotle thought, um, by sort of reasoning what's good for themselves and hab habituation. They normally acquire temperance by relating to another human person, normally uh, a parent, uh, who normally has to play a kind of game with the child to get the child to eat. So we're giving, so some ways evolutionary biology is giving us a new slant on traditional problems in virtue ethics. To give another example, recent work on the asymmetry of the divided brain, I'm thinking particularly of work by Ian McGilchrist, may help to underpin the role of metaphor and narrative in um, forming a moral community. So traditional examples being those of Aesop's fables or the parables of Christ. Nevertheless, while biology is helpful, it is also important to recognize its inherent limitations in developing a complete account of morality. The first and most obvious limitation is that the study of biology is, for the most part, highlighting aspects of our lives that we share with non-human animals. But morality seems to be a uniquely human concern. In fact, um, Dr. Keith Jensen's presentation perhaps highlighted the way in which it is peculiarly human in certain important ways. This peculiarity suggests that morality, rather like Gothic architecture or Mozart's music or particle physics, is one of a broad set of human interests to which the biological sciences alone can only offer fairly limited insights. Second, there is a problem of understanding what is meant by genuine human flourishing. We are reasonably confident that we understand what flourishing means for a dog or for a lettuce, but philosophy has found it far more mysterious to give an account of what is truly good for a human being. Indeed, history is replete with examples of people who did not flourish particularly well in any normal or natural sense, but whose lives are widely regarded as noble and fruitful. Sojourner Truth, for example, was born into slavery in the United States and suffered great cruelty, 
but became an influential abolitionist and women's rights activist. Socrates was executed, and Jesus Christ was crucified, not outcomes that would normally be regarded as marks of success. Yet their lives, taking the longer-term perspective, were fruitful in extraordinary ways. Such cases do not fit easily into a classical Aristotelian account of human goodness. And to be honest, it's hard to see what evolutionary theory can add to this account. Indeed, there may be a slight problem with applying evolutionary theory to this, to, to this issue because of its inherent tendency to frame questions about goodness ultimately in terms of mere material outcomes, notably reproductive success. As a result, a reductive evolutionary account of morality probably falls short even of the classical Greek philosophers in some crucial ways. First, reductive ev evolutionary theory has a tendency to invert the comparative importance of natural and intellectual life. Instead of biological flourishing, enabling and promoting the life of the mind, which is the classical Greek model, the life of the mind can be seen merely as another tool for reproductive success, rather in the manner of a peacock's feathers. Or the contemporary British government, which has come to see universities merely in terms of supporting material production. It's interesting to, to see the play out of materialism uh, among our, the political elite and its effect on university education. Second, if the ultimate standard of goodness is merely material, then the means chosen to achieve the goal lack a fixed standard of reference. A person generally regarded as a bad character might be just as reproductively successful, or even more so, than a person of good character. Even if sophisticated game theory can provide some reasons why goodness should be favoured in the longer term, in the shorter term, the horizon of almost all our actual decisions, bad behaviour can sometimes appear to be a shorter and more reliable path to success of various kinds. Furthermore, even if good behaviour in general promotes long-term success, even in material terms, how are individuals to be encouraged to abide by such principles? Indeed, how does one avoid the temptation to promote good behaviour in others, but to break the rules oneself? Finally, and this is an issue which perhaps quietly gets forgotten, how, how can any utilitarian reasoning promote genuine love for others, in which a person is loved for himself or for herself, rather than simply as a means to some desirable state of affairs, no matter how noble? For these and other reasons, I think morality ultimately requires some reference, either explicitly or implicitly, to an anchor, um, what you might call a transcendental principle, which stands above the contingency and flow of life. This principle does not of itself reduce to mere material success, or feelings of empathy, which are subject to conditioning, as happened with the Nazis, or the public consensus, or the rules of a particular society. Such a principle needs to anchor moral behavior and to promote actions that may be disadvantageous in certain ways in the short term, but fruitful in the longer term, such as guarding valuables that are not one's own or building for a distant future. This principle may, must also be accessible to a broad range of human beings and not simply to a small group of sophisticated utilitarian philosophers. And ideally, it must be a principle that inspires love and not merely fear. For some, of course, this principle is God, according to one or other mode of revelation. Hence the Greeks built around their cities around temples, and we until recently built our cities around cathedrals. 
For others, it may be the loved one's country. Um, certainly, uh, from a very young age, children in the United States um, sing to the American flag, which seems strange to us in Europe. But of course, if you want to bind a society together, uh, it's actually rather a, a clever and inspired way of doing it. For some, it may be the loved one's family. Or for others, an abstract ideal may serve, as it did with communism. Um, or even evolution itself is sometimes treated as an ultimate moral arbiter. There's a, there's a science fiction series I was rather fond of where eventually they, they met the bad guys and they said evolution must be served. But that's, that seems like a, treating almost like a reified or deified principle. Whatever the, choice of, um, whatever the choice of this transcendental principle, however, I think without such an anchor, my concern is that oaths will ultimately have no, have no force when pragmatic considerations are removed. Obligations may be dispensed with when inconvenient. The laws of a state are subject to no higher test, and the strong may ultimately come to dominate the weak. Although great care is needed regarding the discernment and mode of relation to this transcendent principle, some such principle is indispensable to morality. Thank you very much. to um, all three speakers. I think uh, there were a lot of questions raised uh, in these three contributions and I think to just sort of kick off the debate, I'd like to perhaps pick up on a couple of these issues and I'm sure you'll all have a lot of questions as well. So one of the things um, that obviously came out in, in uh, Andrew's presentation at the end is the question of how broad the scope of uh, either game theoretic, evolutionary, or development of psychological explanations really are. So you, you mentioned a couple of examples, um, you know, for instance, Jesus or Socrates, um, who we would regard as having a morally fulfilled or morally worthy life. Um, can we really make sense of that in terms of the evolutionary framework? Um, or do we have to indeed appeal to a higher principle? And in relation to that, um, I'd like to also pick up on the issue uh, regarding relativity that Jason brought up. So although you said that um, your account does allow for objectivity, um, when I think of the examples that you mentioned that were relative to different cultural uh, contexts, for instance, whether or not we regard um, homosexuality as morally right or wrong, wouldn't we say from our perspective that well, you know, it was absolutely wrong, or is absolutely wrong in whatever society we're in, to um, morally condemn homosexuality. Isn't that something that sort of we've come to see now that that is not something we should morally condemn? And don't we need something more than the kind of objectivity that um, you said your account could provide us with? Um, and last year, I'd, I'd, rise a, I'd like to raise, raise a question with regard to the role of emotions. So, um, <coughs> so being uh, as I must admit, a kind of an old school Kantian, I was wondering, well, you know, Kant always said that we should actually abstract from our preferences, from our emotions, from our desires, uh, when we think about moral principles, whereas um, Keith, uh, and to some extent perhaps also Jason, would perhaps say, no, um, the role of emotions is really uh, crucial to understanding morality. So maybe you could you could say a few words about about that issue. So what what really is the role of emotions? I think that shall suffice for for the start. So is that Jason, the thing? Yeah, go ahead. Do you want to? Yeah. Just yes. All right, Christina. So thanks for those questions. I'll do my best to remember them, and if I forget them, please please remind me. 
So regarding the first point uh, raised by Andrew on the importance of anchoring for moral behavior, so I, I do actually agree with a great deal of what you said about that. I think it is true that people do need to anchor their, uh, their values and beliefs and principles on something like that. However, I think we ought not fall prey to the reification of the anchor simply because we treat a grounding of a moral belief or of a source of value as uh, as something which we base our judgments on and the fact that we might take that anchor as irrevisable or eternal or whatnot. The mere fact that we believe that doesn't actually mean that that is in fact correct. So I think that although anchors do provide a valuable role and do have a function in our moral action, it's an, it commits the error of reification to actually move from the fact that they have this useful function to saying that something like that actually does in fact exist. So the view of, of moral theory that I'm trying to advocate here can be probably best viewed as something along the lines of an error theory of morality, in that if you think about what moral rules and principles actually mean, what do they actually mean in terms of their role in, in, in helping society function and flourish is different from the, from the story that we tell ourselves about what they mean. And so we, in one sense, literally understood our moral rules and principles are false. But in the sense that it is in your best interest or you ought to actually behave a certain way, those recommendations that they offer are true they're just not true for the reasons we take them to be. Right. So the second point that I would like to address, which Christina, I've completely forgot. What was the second point that you were saying? So this um, is. I was wondering with regard to the um, examples. That oh yeah, yes, yes, yes. So. Oh yes. So uh, regarding the point about homosexuality and other kinds of forms of behavior, wouldn't we want to say that it, those courses of action were always wrong in the past, and we've only come to realize that? Well. Trust me, I would like to believe that there is this sort of moral progressiveness and moral perfectionism that exists within humanity. But I think that when you actually look at the way in which moral beliefs have changed over time, that we see that it's a much more fluid uh, process than that would actually suggest. Take, for example, the current debate that's going on right now in the U.S. with the Republican candidates. So over here in Europe, we're very proud of the uh, the the... the European uh, Bill of Human Rights. We are, you know, I suppose the British government is not terribly proud about the fact that it was implicated in waterboarding through acts of extraordinary rendition, but I still think that over here there's a sense that those were wrong. In America, though, you've got a very different take on the issue. At least three of the Republican candidates said they would bring back waterboarding as a form of interrogation because they viewed they considered it not to be a form of torture, but merely a form of sufficiently robust uh, encouragement to, to torture. <laughs> and if you look at values in American culture regarding inequality, regarding the importance of social welfare, even regarding the importance of tolerance and multiculturalism, I think that if there is anything like the kind of progressiveness or perfectionism that we might want to believe in, that doesn't occur naturally. It only occurs because we want to see that and we want to try to bring it about and we aim to try to make that so. But that's exactly what, but that's exactly what you would expect if, if moral principles are really just a process of negotiation and 
and argumentation and, tr and the society try to figure out what kinds of people we want to be. But would you say that you could actually say, no, waterboarding is wrong? No, no matter what Republican candidates or the majority of American people might think it is actually wrong? Or can, well, can we not say that then? I believe that it's wrong. I think that many people in this society would believe that it's wrong, but people in other societies would take it not to be wrong. And the moment you do not reify the anchors of moral beliefs and principles, then you have to say, well, what is the reason why we take that belief to be wrong? The question I just want to ask is, where is it in the universe that moral principles are written? And I would want to suggest that there's no place that you would find moral principles written of these sorts of concerns other than the fact that they are products of our social construction. I know that's a bit too strongly because I do think Keith is right in that if we look at our biological inheritance, tendencies towards pro-social feelings, other regarding feelings, are part of our human nature. But the extent to which those provide absolute constraints on our actions is less, is less robust than we would like. Look at the Milgram experiments, look at the Zimbardo prison experiments. It's very easy for our human nature to you know, act very differently from, what, from you know, what we take to be moral action. As and Spencer, Andrew might have an objection <laughs> to, <laughs> to some of the things you said. Uh, well, well, I think you, you, you framed it very well. Um, uh, except in one, one thing, of course. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think you necessarily have to assume that the principle, the transgender principle, is reified. I think you can almost act as if it is, which is in fact what a lot of societies do. Um, but the fact is that they come to the conclusion they have to act as if it is true, um, suggests that it's important in morality. So I mean, the Greeks built their cities around temples. Uh, it's often they had a very um, skeptical or mixed up view of most of the gods, although their philosopher talked about one god, of course. Um, but uh, you know, they still felt it was important for co social cohesion to have that sense of something transcendent over and above um, the run of life. So. I accept it's a different question. It's a question of metaphysics as to whether um, the, this principle exists or not. Um, but I suspect it's very hard to avoid either acting as if it does exist or believing that it does exist or constructing it as if um, it, it's there in order to give some kind of grounding to morality. Okay, um, maybe, Keith, do you want to either add something to this particular issue or maybe say something about uh, the role of emotions and... I can maybe say something about the role of emotions. I, yeah. Like I said, I work with chimps. I don't do anything very transcendent. Um, <laughs> you know, avoiding poo being flung at you is maybe transcendent. But um, Actually, they were good chimps. They didn't do that. Um, the, the emotions part, I think, you know, I'm not trying to say that rational elements aren't important, and certainly that social elements aren't important, but it's interesting that we've got this very quick, implicit intuitive understanding of something that's right and something that's wrong. And it's interesting how this can be shaped very easily. And so there's many examples. I mean, for instance, um, picking one of Andrew's examples, Jesus was on a cross, and uh, we would view that as a very wrong thing to do to somebody. He wasn't the only one up on a cross. There were many people up for one reason or another because they violated some stricture of their society. It was also an environment where failing to stone somebody to death because they broke a norm would actually be wrong. You have to stone somebody to death, and there are societies where this sort of thing still goes on. So there's a huge amount of latitude with which these things can move, but there's this strong emotional component. Some things just feel wrong. Um, and they provoke moral outrage. Um, I, I didn't show some of the 
videos, the, the chimpanzees, um, the one where you saw where Reet was watching her daughter have her food stolen, she just was practically falling asleep. When it was her own food being stolen, it was, she, she was just a big ball of black rage. Um, she was very, very upset. Now, actually the chimps were separated so they wouldn't hurt each other. But what she could do was pull a rope or hit a button to cause the table to collapse so that the other chimp couldn't get the food. So she could intervene um, and she could never get the food back, but she could punish somebody for something they did wrong or at least act vengefully. And they were certainly very angry when something bad happened to them and it's very easy to tell when a chimp is angry. They just didn't get angry at somebody else's misfortunes. Now they do get angry if their child is screaming and then they'll just beat up anybody within arm's reach. Um, so these emotions exist and they have a very long history, but our emotions are tied up in other people in a very uh, profound way. And I think that this might have served as sort of a starting point for a lot of the uh, development of morality. Right, so Jason uh, wants, wants to respond to that, but I'd, li I'd like to also just pick, pick that up and, and ask, so given that you say that emotions are very fluid in a way and can be shaped in many different ways, would that, should that make us suspicious in, the, in terms of letting emotions guide or constrain what the moral principles are, or, or should we just accept that and say, well, you know, maybe then moral principles themselves also are in some sense? Well, you could, you could view the emotions as a very strong internalization of the rules that you've learned. Now, whether any of those are truly innate, um, some studies on infants, where infants look longer at surprising events and so on, suggest that maybe from a very, very early age, children recognize unfairness, harm-causing behaviors. Um, it's hard to say exactly what's going on in these very small infants' heads, but there may already be some very strong concern for others and then societies can shape it in many different ways, but they're already born with some sort of concern for others. I think that's interesting. Jason? Yes, so the, the point I just wanted to, to return to was Keith's idea that these emotions can actually be shaped and attached to different sorts of things than that for which they were originally selected. So the outrage that the chimps feel when food is taken from them is probably as an emotion not significantly different from the outrage that we feel if someone steals our bicycle or steals our automobile. But evolution didn't actually select for us to feel those emotions if our automobile or bicycle was stolen because back in the savannah there weren't such things and perhaps the actual notion of private property as an area that actually, as, as, a, as, a, as a thing that actually entails rights and duties and obligations was not present you know, 100,000 years ago. But what's happened is we've created the social institution where certain objects have certain special statuses which are generated as a process of social construction. And what we're capable of doing is actually leveraging these emotions of outrage, anger, and so on, which were selected for very different purposes, and attaching them to violations of these socially constructed things. So take, for example, if, if if you are a musician and someone steals a song of yours and, and uploads it to uh, whatever the current illegal file sharing system is right now. Um, so there's a sense in which you're going to feel outrage and anger over that, but yet nothing really was stolen from you, right? You still have the song, you still have many potential sales as well. They may not have even lost any money from that person who took your song because they probably weren't going to buy it in the first place. But yet we still feel these emotions. So the thing that I want to suggest is that that basic framework, which I take to be our original biological endowment, is something which can actually 
which, which gives us a lot of the moral motivation that we feel when we try to negotiate these problems. It's just those emotions are attached to very different sorts of objects and violations than what originally existed back in the environment of evolutionary adaptation. Um, Andrew, I think you said in your talk that um, explanations that appeal to emotions or empathy are limited precisely because you know, they can be manipulated. Emotions can be manipulated. Yes, of course. Yes. I was just wondering whether you had a comment on um. that well, yes, I mean, it's not really much to ex except to just remind us uh, all of the, um, of the story of the, of the Nazis and how fast they were able to change people's sense of what is right and wrong um, with regard to certain classes of people uh, in just a few years. So they were able to condition people to have quite different emotions than they would have done uh, previously. So that's why I mean, civilization is a fragile thing. And if we lose our anchor points, um, it's extraordinarily fast how quick... Um, our descent into barbarism can be extraordinarily fast. So emotions are useful. In the Middle Ages, they called them passions, and they thought they were a help to acting well if they were well-ordered. But um, to use them as, the, as a sort of the arbiter of things or to rely on them, I think that's where the danger, where the, the danger comes in. And what do you think uh, where these anchors that you mentioned um, might come from? I mean, you mentioned that briefly in your, in your talk that you might have different, pe different people might have different views as to the status uh, of these anchors, but um, given that they, that they are supposed to act as sort of transcendental principles, um, shouldn't we have something to say about where they come from and how, how do we know them? How do we access them? <laughs> the good question. I mean, ask a parent, bring up a child. I mean, you know, pretty soon you've got to you've got to establish a standard of right and wrong uh, with a child, and um, so the, the transcendent principle may be just the parent um, who acts as an as as, as an arbiter. Um, but it's got to be out there somehow. And what was interesting, actually, the experiments uh, Keith referred to um, with, with with children having a very strong sense of equity. I think some of the initial beginnings of morality are hardwired into us. And I've observed this anecdotally, um, watching my nieces and nephew, that they almost instantly, from the word go, that they establish a sense of equity. And uh, they act in such a way as, you know, this is their property and that's not fair, and you hear all these sorts of things. So this, I, th I think there's something that's hardwired into us. There's something we uh, acquire through reasoned consideration of what is good for human flourishing, which is a Greek classical model. Um, and then there is this, uh, often for a well-functioning society, reference to some trans transcendent principle. So a bit of a mixture of all those things. No, no, not one of the above, but, but these things working together. I think at this point we should um, open up the discussion to the audience. I think uh, there's lots of questions. I can see a lot of hands already. So let's just start right there. Thank you. Um, I'd like to um, go to um, Jason's point. I, I, I was kind of excited to see your taxonomy, your, your four boxes, um, but then soon a bit disappointed because I thought there, was, there are other better routes towards finding something that's both objective and uh, relative. And I thought the, the helpful bit there is intersubjective because you, say, you seem to suggest that the presence of other human beings determining the social morality suddenly changes something from being subjective to objective. I may have got that wrong, but it seems I'm much more at home with Andrew's position that the meaning of morality is not just about consensus. It goes further than consensus, because consensus can be wrong. And I'm interested in what conditions 
the intersubjective. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the Andrew Wiggins solution. Sorry, um, David Wiggins solution, a sensible subjectivism, which I think is an excellent inquiry into that. Right. So the first point is, thanks very much for the observation about intersubjectivity. I use the category of objective there to actually include that. What I, what I was intending to convey is just the fact that no individual can actually overturn the rightness or wrongness of a judgment simply by their own, by their own willingness. And so on that view, if you intersubjectivity would also be grouped within the category of the objective as I had it. I just didn't want to actually engage in further hair splitting than, than was necessary. The point that I wanted to raise, or that I want to say in response to your second question, is that everything that I was trying to say is actually compatible with people being mis mistaken about what they think they ought to do or what they think is the right way forward. So remember that I said that morality provides a set of rules which, when followed, will provide people who are limited, boundedly rational, with the best way to achieve what it is they, that they want as a society, given the constraints of others. Yeah. There's, there's a lot there, but the one thing that's important to say is that morality is the system of rules which provides a, an optimal or nearly optimal solution to that. That view of morality is compatible with there being, say, widespread false consciousness on behalf of the population in that they have their own goals and ambitions that they want to see realized. At the same time, there can be quite a bit of deception about what people think is the best way of trying to see those goals realized. Just take, for example, uh, the voting habits of uh, poor Republicans in the U.S. You know, they are generally against taxes on the super-rich, they are against social welfare, they are against social programs, they are often against public education, but yet, given their socioeconomic status, they would be the primary beneficiaries of those kinds of policies. Why do they vote against them? In part because there has been a misalignment of what they think is actually in their own interests, in part because of misleading rhetoric, in part of misleading ideology, but there is a mistaken view about the best way to satisfy ends that they would actually endorse. So part of what I want to say is that, um, yes, I'm sensitive to these concerns about it, there needing to be the intersubjectivity and also the possibility for a considerable amount of error in what people take they ought to do. But I think that what I've said is actually <coughs> compatible with that, and what I've tried to say in response. Yes, just, just to stand up a little bit for those poor Republicans in middle America. Um, as, I, I, as I did work with them for a while, uh, or, or lived in that part of America, they're also the most generous people, interestingly. So on their, in their personal morality and their sense of generosity, they are uh, quite extraordinary and exemplary. So I want to just, just put that on the record. I did actually want to pick up something that Jason said earlier, because I did find this a little bit strange, because you said Robinson Crusoe wouldn't have had um, morality wouldn't have meant anything to Robinson Crusoe. So I wonder what you thought about, um, let's say he had an off day. He decided he didn't want to get up and catch the fish that morning, or he just wanted to let it all go, um, or he just wanted to jump up and down and shout. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of things he might do, or even jump off a cliff, for heaven's sake. So um, are, these things that are, just mor are these things morally neutral? Does morality really only have an existence, uh, any kind of meaning, when there's more than one person involved? So in reference to, coming back to your point about the transcendent principle, I mean, one natural source for trying to argue that we actually have duties to ourselves, right? I mean, where does that come from? I mean, the idea is that we might say, yes, Robinson Crusoe perhaps 
should have um, gotten up in the morning, gotten strove to go and catch a fish and do various things. But where does that edict or recommendation actually stem from if his actual preferences or desires at that moment in time are not in those interests? I mean, we have the ability to actually set the end states we want to see realized. We have the ability to actually uh, not only articulate our preferences, but to change our preferences <coughs> over time. I mean, do we have these obligations to always try to press forward and better ourselves no matter what? I'm unclear what the source of this kind of perfectionism can, can derive from. I mean, you, you keep referring back to this idea of some sort of transcendent principle, but you have, and although you said that people just need to act as if they reify that, I mean, in order to actually raise an objection of the kind you just did, it need not be the, ta be the case that people just act as if they reify that, because obviously the moment they stop taking those principles as actually absolute, they need not actually uh, act in ways that are compatible with that. So did Robinson Crusoe, when he was by himself, need to do something if he didn't actually want to? I would say no. I mean, do we have these sort of obligations to always push ourselves Onward and ahead with perfectionism. Could I just go on ground on this one because it's getting fun. What about cruelty to animals? Could he be cruel to animals? So I didn't actually get a chance to respond to your question about Nazis earlier. So I sort of see that um, Godwin's law has already been invoked, and now I'm sort of defending cruelty to animals. But so um, so it's interesting. So what about factory farms and uh, eating chickens that are raised in cages? So is that cruelty to animals? Well, interestingly, this is an area where we're actually navigating a new set of moral beliefs and moral refinement. Because if you ask people, say, 50 years ago, whether they thought factory farming was actually any sort of moral outrage, I suspect, first of all, most people wouldn't really have thought about it or known about it, and then if you ask them if they cared, many of them would probably say, well, I don't know, chicken tastes pretty good. Um, I think what's happened, to take a page out of Peter Singer's book, The Expanding Circle, is that as people have revised their beliefs and thought more about what they care about, we've changed what we care about and we've changed our preferences, so that now things that didn't bother us before like being cruel to animals, now actually do. Was that mean that it was acceptable to be cruel to animals? Well, in the sense that it was part of the social system and social practice and people didn't worry about it and they thought that raising animals in those conditions was okay. I realize that this is somewhat, un, you know, perhaps an unpleasant reflection on our human nature, but I think it's important to realize that there's nothing which really makes us saints or sinners other than the way we act and the kind of people we want to be. To think that we've got some sort of ineliminable drive towards goodness gives us, I think, a benefit of the doubt that, history speaking, as with the Nazis, doesn't actually warrant. Okay, we should take some more
And the second one is reputation in the context of situational, uh, 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 of sexual selection. Now, to take an extreme example, if you imagine the impact on the, ma uh, the marriageability of the family of a BC, which certainly to my generation was the real top notch in being altruistic, brothers, sisters, so forth, suddenly become much more desirable commodities because you're marrying into a family of such incredible eminence. The BC's earned it. Put the boot on the other foot and imagine someone um, you know, cruelly rapes and kills a woman. What price his brothers, sisters, and so forth? Acts of extreme altruism, you know, massively increased familial reproductive worth, acts of extreme um, um, selfishness damage familial reproductive worth. And that's how I believe we've sustained you know, what appears to be very moral, other centered behaviours. It doesn't need a God, it doesn't need anything, it just pays dividends in evolutionary terms. Well, thank you for your question. Um, the Darwinism, I'm not sort of arguing that it doesn't do a lot of things. Um, I'm, just saying, I'm just saying that uh, yeah, there are limits. Uh, it doesn't tell us much about Gothic architecture or Mozart or particle physics either. Um, and morality seems to be, a, to some extent, a peculiarly human term, uh, a set of interests. As I said, wildebeest, uh, sorry, lions don't debate whether to kill wildebeest or not. Uh, with regard to neo-Darwinism, there's an interesting story um, in The Age of Empathy by Franz de Waals, who's a famous primatologist. I'm sure you, you're familiar with him. And uh, he tells the story of the Enron Corporation, because the Enron Corporation, the man who founded it, was very keen on Richard Dawkins. And he decided to run his company on very strict neo-Darwinian principles, where everyone competes absolutely for their own success. And the problem is with that kind of setup is that as soon as conditions are disturbed, uh, the whole thing tends to implode. Um, there's the selfish gene that's part of the story, but maybe, the, maybe there's something else there. And when you, when you construct models that are purely based on strict neo-Darwinian principles, then there's an instability when the utilitarian principle is removed, and suddenly the organism or the organization can collapse quite fast. Can I counter that by saying to you that that is completely to misunderstand the notion of the selfish gene. The selfish gene does not mean the selfish individual. The selfish gene can induce extraordinarily altruistic behaviour in individuals. It is the gene that's selfish in the sense that it wants to behave in ways that carries it through generation to generation. Well, as I said to you, something as remote as a, as a guy flying a Lancaster, earning a BC because he dies to save his comrades, is accountable in terms of the selective advantage to his kingdom of the enormous prestige that confers. And that cannot be dismissed by all observations about Gothic architecture or, so, or, or whatever you want. It, 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 it's a fact. I've never heard it deployed before. I was forced to deploy it because I desperately wanted to explain this sort of thing. And to me, it fits the bill. And, okay, yeah, I think we should probably move on. Just, uh, yes, just a, one brief note to follow up on that. There's an example which is closer to home, which is that Matt Ridley, who was <coughs> the former chair of Northern Rock, was also quite um, fond of selfish Gene Dawkins kind of considerations. Um, but the point that I just want to note is that in thinking about neo-Darwinism or thinking about game theoretic explanations of morality, we have to be sure to not criticize applications of a simplified version of the theory when more complicated versions of the theory exist. It, otherwise, we're becoming misled by 
and by a version of the theory that no one really quite believes. It's like those people who extol virtues of the free market but then forget that many of the standard uh, theorems of the free market ignore the existence of negative externalities or information asymmetries or you know time value of information, imperfect information, all of these sorts of things. Likewise, with respect to uh, Darwin or evolutionary game theoretic accounts of morality, you need to incorporate facts about human cognitive limitations, whether or not certain social practices are actually sustainable for more than an instant or rather, say, say a, a, long, a fairly long run. If you invoke considerations of the long run, then you have to worry about, well, how exactly are future states valued against present states? These are all very difficult questions about human psychological architecture and what we care about. So the important thing to keep in mind when we talk about the evolution of morality is not be misled in, for sake of argumentation into dealing with simpli simplified straw man variants of theories. Can I, can I also add one small thing to that? Sorry. Um, so with, with my thoughts on this too is that morality, like any other human trait, did evolve. Uh, the question is, is how did it evolve, what sort of processes, and why did it evolve in humans and not perhaps other animals? Franz Duval says that our antecedents can be found in our closest living relatives. The research I and others do challenges that. But nevertheless, it did evolve in humans, and there's some interesting theories to suggest that maybe even standard models of inclusive fitness don't work. Some are talking about gene culture coevolution and cultural group selection. The question is, is what drove the human animal to be moral, how does morality help the human animal? Um, so evolution is still very much on the table. I don't think we should forget that. I hope this is appropriate, but, but this is the London School of Economics, not the London School of Ethics, and um, I teach uh, ethics seminars to very, very senior business people at the Wharton School in the U.S. and at Cambridge Judge School in here. And Keith yep. and the others too, uh, you talk about the regard for others, and you, you told us how human children start recognizing the 50-50 principle. You didn't take it on to adults. I presume you meant to say that adults even uh, refine that further, but in capitalism, which is the system we live in, and in the U.S., maybe a little different flavor, even stronger, does the regard for others and ethics, which I'm supposed to teach these guys, does it, where is its place in the capitalistic system, or does it not belong there, and it has to belong in an alternative universe of once they've made it, then they're supposed to be charitable. Okay, um, do, you mind, do you mind if I ask you a question? Because I, I think this is a very good question. Okay. So, in teaching ethics to economists and business people, do you feel successful? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean that. That's in the a big paradox. Whenever I tell people that, especially when I tell them I'm a trained lawyer, they say, what? Right. <laughs> but the fact is, there are two parts. There are those who are coming for dispensation, for everything they, because these are very senior businessmen, board chairmen, mm -hmm. who by that time they want me to dis give them dispensation for their sins, and I say, I'm not doing that. But yes, am I successful? I really don't know. I've been doing this for 10 years, and so I can't answer your question. Maybe the reason I can't answer it is because I'm approaching it wrongly, and I suppose where does this regard for others come in? It's a, it's a heck of a good question. So um, concerning the adult behavior, I described the mini ultimatum game in very simplistic terms. It's a really cool tool 
because it allows you to measure fair outcomes as well as fair intentions. So did somebody intend the unfair outcome or was it a byproduct? And people have varying degrees of sensitivity to what counts as unfair based on the outcome as well as the goals behind it. And this requires some sort of psychology like theory of mind or perspective taking, empathy, all of these come into it. On the other hand, you can play all of these games. Like you can, as far as I know, nobody's tested a psychopath um, knowingly. Um, but if you test the psychopathic individual, they might do very well at the ultimatum game because they might make a very selfish offer initially, learn that this gets rejected by this weird, irrational, emotional person, <laughs> and then learn to adjust accordingly. Um, and some people have argued that master captains of industry have a higher proportion of psychopathic tendencies than the rest of us. And some people have suggested that economists as students are a self-selected population. I don't really know. Um, the question is, is, there is this capacity for concern for others, not everyone agrees, but I would argue that there's this capacity for concern for others that can be then shaped or shaped out. Now, in a capitalistic market, whether you're taking a Keynesian approach or a purely, purely capitalistic approach, having the welfare of others in mind can actually be very beneficial to you. Now, this is a very utilitarian point of view. Uh, and natural selection likes utilitarian things. Ultimately, it has to come back to your genes or groups of genes or something. But it can do the little trick of making you blind to the future for yourself by making you very concerned about that person right now. And it's this blindness to your own future that's very interesting. It may still exist at a genetic level or at a capitalistic level, but at the core, at the time of the action, you are actually very concerned about this other individual. I don't know how you actually get that across to people, but I'm hoping it's already in place. Okay, um, yeah. So I, I'm wondering how the sort of anchoring idea solves the problem of what has already been put forward. Um, I think history is also riddled with very horrible examples of our anchored morality going awfully wrong, I mean, especially as a woman in the Bible. Um, uh, and additionally, so it seems to me that the problem becomes one of who, as opposed to how. So who gets to anchor this principle? Who gets to set the boundaries in the society? And um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious as to what you had to say. Yes, it's, it's dynamite. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I, I just certainly don't advocate not being very careful about, um, first of all, the choice of principle. I, I, don't think, I think it just keeps coming back in morality. It's very hard to avoid it. And um, it's interesting in communist states in the last century because um, in many communist states, religion was abolished. Uh, and then they started using a sort of deified language of the supreme leader. Um, I, have to, I sometimes show... Um, uh, my students in philosophy, I show them what looks like a hymn. All the flowers of the earth tell of his love. He's the creator of happiness. But the last line is, long live, long live General Kim Jong-il. Because in North Korea, he has effectively taken on the attributes of God. So I think that what's interesting is it keeps coming back in different forms. But I think that's where, where, where great care is needed, and you're absolutely right. Um, but I wasn't saying that uh, we don't need to be careful, but it is inescapable sooner or later and, and it can be a very good thing uh, because the alternative is this genetic drift um, that can quickly allow us to descend into barbarism of one kind or another. Okay, question in front. Yeah. Uh, I would like to pick up upon the intersubjectivity in a climate change perspective because how close in terms of time and space 
would you have to be to the other subject? Because we see that our action might influence future generations or people in uh, developing countries, but still we act in an unmoral way. All right. So I think that is a very good question. I think it's actually a very difficult question. I think you can either approach it from a descriptive point of view and in the sense of, well, what are the actual discount rates that people use when they make choices? Or you can approach it from the normative point of view, saying, well, what discount rate should we actually use in trying to reflect these kinds of considerations? Now, when Stern invoked the discount rate in his report, he actually took a normative stance rather than a descriptive stance. And that was one of the great points of conflict in this. But I think that it's an inevitable point of conflict because this has to this involves a question of not only the kinds of people that we are, but the kinds of people that we would like to become or the kinds of people we would like to see ourselves as. And in cases like this regarding climate change, we do need to try to we need need to be we need to recognize that there is this conflict, say, between our natural psychological predisposition to think of problems using a certain rate of discounting the future. We then need to try to control for that, knowing what the horrific consequences are going to be if we continue this short-sighted way of thinking. But then we need to try to find ways of motivating ourselves to act in accordance with what, with what we would like to see realized. And part of the reason why I just want to stress this, uh, the, stress the importance of accepting this view of, of cultural evolution and realizing that many of our principles are shapeable and fluid is because the moment you realize that there are that there is no absolute source of the, the, the anchor for what we take to be important, then that engages us directly in this kind of in this question about what are the kinds of people we want to be, what is the future that we would like to see realized, what are the values that we actually take to be sufficiently important to press forward. And realizing that those are actually not God given, but are a product of historical uh, acquisition, but they are also luckily capable of being historically refined and changed in the future. And the problem is that many people in thinking about climate change take the status quo as though it existed for a particular reason which in itself needs to be given some sort of significance. And I think I think it would be an, an important thing if people were actually to address this aspect of the debate, which I think has been neglected. I can just sort of come back to that. I think your question actually went beyond just the discounting of future um, and, and sort of address this issue of empathy and how close do you have to be to someone to, to feel empathy. So Keith um, shows sort of that we are motivated morally very often by concern for others. Um, but what if these others are, are very far away? I mean, all the examples in your studies, obviously, we are always concerned with you know, people right opposite to us. So how, how can we sort of extend that circle of concern I don't know how, but it's it's an interesting part of like what you're saying about the expanding circle that we can have animals in our sphere of moral concern. We can have people in other countries, and media helps expand that. I think the fact that we have fast communication. So, for instance, you can feel very empathic towards the plight of a woman in Egypt because she posted an inappropriate picture on her blog, for instance, or the people rioting in the streets. We don't know them. We'll never meet them but you can somehow imagine yourself in their position. And so you can actually identify more strongly with somebody thousands of miles away than somebody who lives across the street based on their beliefs, their values, or you know this sort of thing. And so it's very interesting that we can move these concerns very fluidly. On the flip side, I would argue that you take any two people and you have two groups because you can also start to split and find differences and you can ultimately split and. I mean, you look at religious denominations, all this fragmentation that worship the same God, but they've fragmented in multiple ways and very harmful ways. Well, 
know, put people into different two different sports teams, and immediately right. So it's it's a it's a the human psychology is very prone to the tricks of in group out group, and it can work for good, for, which is a nice thing. I just don't know how we can work that. Okay, I think we'll have time for one last question, uh, right in the very back. Uh, if our imperative gene is selfishness, how can we explain the existence of the saint in all age? Last week in Alexandria Palace, I met the embracing saint, Bama, who came from the India, and uh, she has embraced more than 39 million people in the last uh, 31 years. And uh, he has, she has done a lot of purely selfless contribution to the whole world and uh, uh, of course she has no ego at all and uh, she is uh, I mean morally she is a perfect model uh, in our age so I suspect that the evolution of these uh, morality links to the consciousness evolution seems that for those things actually they have achieved a certain level of consciousness, consciousness which is realizing that you and me there's no boundary actually you and me are one there's a oneness wholeness those, you, those enlightened beings are in those levels is from the brain not from those materials world and actually that's a beauty it's just a life change for me so I just wondering the address the so alright so I, thanks for asking that question because I think it is important to call attention to the fact that there's a particular sense of how the term selfish has been being used in this discussion and that has to do with say the the source of the motivation for individuals who act and it means merely that the source of the motivation comes from within the person rather than seeing any external authority as recognized as the motivation for that in the case of the selfish gene what it means is just that the the gene, what the, the gene is, is trying to do is just motive, motivate or encourage additional copies of itself. Two fairly distinct notions of selfishness, one involving human psychology and motivating factors, the other technical notion of um, Darwinian evolution. Uh, so I think that when you, if you keep those two senses in mind and realize that selfish just doesn't mean I only care about me as the beneficiary, and I think a lot of these concerns um, disappear. Just, um, I think I think you're absolutely right that we have to be very careful with the use of these terms because the terms themselves have an implicit power that goes beyond their originator's desires. So I think that's why we like dynamite. We'll just be a little bit careful um, with these terms, and they are banded around a lot in popular culture. But I'm very grateful for that man at the back for raising the issue of of saints or exemplars of morality because um, it partly helps me to fill in an answer which I, I didn't feel I really answered that lady's question properly about where do we get the source of the anchor point. Um, if it's not belief in God, if it's not some revelation, then one of the most obvious ways is exemplary human beings. Um, people that we admire as having some uh, transcendent nobility or goodness and that we would like to be like in some way. So I think in a practical sense, the existence of saints or, or exemplary human beings in one way or another has been extraordinarily important in helping to give a concrete sense of that anchor point. Okay, so with that I'm afraid we are at the end of our time. Please join me in thanking our speakers.